0: Amen. And I remember when uh, Art was here, uh, Art and Pat were here before the move in 2010. They had a lot of relatives down, I think, during a maybe uh, during the summer or maybe it was Christmas time. And uh, on a Sunday night service, he gave that, he gave his testimony, and one after another came and joined him on stage that he had led, he and Pat had led to the Lord. Big stage full of people. And uh, let me share with you though, some, uh, in fact, let me share with you. The best news that you've ever heard. Now, would you be willing to listen if I, if I shared that with you? Well, first, let me share with you the bad news, all right? The bad news is no matter how good a person you are, no matter how, well I, how much I like you, no matter what kind of husband or wife you are, I know something about you. And what I know about you is that you're not perfect. In fact, no one is perfect, including me. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's bad news. But that's not the worst news. The worst news is you can't do anything about it. The Bible says, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. You see, if I could go to heaven on my own, I could boast about it. I could brag about it. You know, it didn't have anything to do with Jesus. It's just all about me. But the essence of salvation is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's not the best news, but the good news. In fact, the word gospel means good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to take our place and die for, the, die for our sins. He did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. At the moment he cried out on the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? At that very moment, he took on your sins and mine. That's good news. It is good news. But the best news is, is that it's free. You don't have to earn it. Everything that's ever been done for you to ensure your salvation and to buy us out of that kind of slavery has already been done for Jesus, by Jesus Christ on the cross. It is a gift of God. Lest anyone would boast. And all you have to do is receive that free gift, receive what Jesus Christ has done for you. To say to Jesus, I believe that you died for me, and simply call upon the name of the Lord. Now, at the end of the service, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. But that is the simple gospel presentation, made very short, by the way. And so you look at that, and you ask yourselves the question, however, why would Jesus Christ be the way? Why would he die for us? Are we really that lost? Are we really so lost that we can't even do anything for ourselves? Why can't we earn it? I mean, after all, if I could earn it, maybe God would be proud of me. And we think that way. Why does it have to be a free gift? Well, as we open up to Romans chapter 3, we find... uh, In these passages, Romans 1 through 5, the greatest presentation of the gospel, the good news of any place in the Bible. In fact, reformer Martin Luther said that actually this passage, chapter 3, 21 through 31, is the greatest passage in the Bible, period about salvation and explaining our salvation experience. And so Paul was writing this letter to the church at Rome. Rome was the most influential city, of course, in the Roman Empire. And therefore, maybe the most important church. But Paul had never been there. And now he was in prison and he's writing a letter longing to go there to implant the gospel and a good word and encouraging word with them. And so now he's writing a letter. Now, keeping in mind he's never been there, what he wants to do is give a foundation. And he begins to give a foundation of salvation and then in chapter 6 through 8 about sanctification. That is how we we grow and overcome sin in in a practical way in our life. And then he goes on and talks about salvation again. And then he talks about the Christian life and applying that in the latter chapters. And so he's writing this. And in the midst of that, we read beginning in verse 21. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take each, four, each one of those four points of the gospel. And I want to ask what I believe a crucial question is in the mind of a lot of people when you present the gospel. And so let's look at it. First of all, let's look at the bad news. Is your neighbor really all that lost? I mean, after all, he seems to be doing pretty well. I see him mowing his grass every once in a while. He's got his earphones on, he seems to have a smile on his face, he seems to be okay. Uh, People come over there every once in a while. He's friendly to me, he's nice to me, he seems to be doing just fine. Is he really all that lost? Well, let's look at verse 21. Paul starts off with these two words. And with these two words, the entire book really changes course the words, but now. Now, anytime you see that in the Bible, you can pretty much say that there's something that's gone on before. And as it's gone on before, now God has intervened and changed something from the, for the better. What has gone on before? The Bible says in, in chapters one through five, Paul is talking about the salvation experience. And the first three chapters leading up to verse 21, He's really talking about the lostness of man. He starts off this way in Romans 8, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What he's saying is here is that God has placed the knowledge of God in every single person's heart when they're born. Then he goes on to say, not only that, but his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. He's saying not only has God implanted, and imparted the knowledge of God within each one of us, but also we can grow up and look at nature and the heavens and, the na- and nature around us and understand that there's got to be a creator somewhere. There has to be a mastermind behind, behind all this stuff. And because of that, no one is without excuse. All are lost, separated from God. The Bible says in chapter 1 that the person who's never heard the gospel, the pagan, is responsible and accountable for his sin. He's lost. In chapter 2, the moral person, the one who tries to work their way in favor with God, is lost. Chapter 3, those who are religious, particularly what he's talking about here is the Jewish nation, the Jewish population. He's saying you are lost if you're religious as well, unless, of course, you are justified and redeemed out of your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So he comes to verse 21, and he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, bear witness to the gospel, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's what you have to do. You have to believe for there are, there is no distinction between the Jew and the, and the Greek, the Jew and the Gentile. There's no distinction between any race, no distinction between any country. We are all standing the same at the foot of the cross. For all that sinned, he says, and fall short of the glory of God. The line of the glory of God is perfection. If we sin one time, we fall below that line. And there's nothing we can do to make up for that. Now, because I am unholy, because I have sinned, and sin is anything that you think wrong too long, anytime you do something against the law of God, anytime you fail to do something that you ought to do, all that sin. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all that put together. And so it's very, very, in fact, I would say impossible, but I don't, you know, I'm not God. I'm not saying that uh, when I say impossible, I'm only talking about human reason. I think it would be impossible to even go through a day without breaking the law of God in some way, but certainly not in a lifetime. We know that. We know we have put other gods before God we we know that we've lied we know that we have not always honored our father and our mother we know we've coveted things we've broken every single one of the ten commandments according to James chapter one and two therefore we stand separated because God is holy I am unholy therefore there's a separation between us we look at this and understand that God is saying that yes we do come short and we know there's something missing don't we Even the person who says, I'm living my life and I'm living it to the fullest. I've got hope in the future. Maybe things aren't going well like I want them to go now, but I've got hope in the future. Every single one of us knows deep down there's something missing. So he says, but now, but now, look in verse 24. We are justified. Now, there are three big words in this passage. One is justification that is being declared not guilty, being justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Then there's the word propitiation, which we'll come back to in just a moment. But here's a word that talks about redemption. He have been justified by his grace as a gift through the de- redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now this word redeemed means to be brought, bought out of a slave market. It is actually an economic word. And back in the day, back in Rome, you really didn't have any bankruptcy laws. So if you went under, you went under. And what you had to do is maybe sell all of your land and, the, and you were broke or you didn't have any land. And so you sold yourself into slavery and you had a new boss and you had to work off that debt by being their slave. Now, God says we are all slaves to sin. We are all saved slaves to worshiping another master. He says, I've redeemed you out of that by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what have we been redeemed from? Well, there's many things. But two things that are no, we notice in this passage, we notice guilt and slavery. Guilt, we all feel it. All of us wish we could go back and set the reset button somewhere, take a mulligan, do a do-over. Go back in time and say, well, I'd change that decision. I'd change my reaction to that person. I would do something uh, proactive to save that relationship. Every one of us, if we've lived long enough, at least 30, 40 years, we all would like to go back and say, I'd like to change something in my life. We're driven oftentimes by that guilt. And it's all around us. And we can't get, people say, well, you just need to accept it, deal with it. I mean, after all, you're not that bad of a person. We know that doesn't work. We, we know that somebody tells a psychologist, you know, bless psychologists, but if they tell us they're outside the scripture, oh, you're not so bad, everybody's doing it. You've got to get over that. You've got to run. You know that doesn't work. That's simply trying to redeem ourselves, to justify ourselves in some way. We, uh, some of you watch the movie. If you don't, if you've never seen it, you can probably uh, watch it on television in one of those those things, Prime Video or whatever today. And that is Chariots of Fire. And there was a runner in that movie and his name was Harold Abrahams. And as he was about to run the 100-yard dash in the, what was it, 1924 Olympics, He was interviewed and was talking there, and he was saying, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And that's what we seek to do, justify that existence, redeem ourselves in some way. Samuel Johnson, who was a British writer back in the 18th century, writes that his dad owned a bookstall in the marketplace. And he remembered one time, I think he was a teenager at the time, that his dad asked him to go to the bookstall one afternoon and he asked him to go there and stay for two hours. He didn't go, never went, never showed up. Now that's kind of important since you could steal money from there. It's not like Pam and I went to a little town called Hiawassee, Georgia. We're going through the town and there was this place where nobody nobody was there. I mean, it was just outdoors. All this, these trinkets, you know what I'm saying? It's a trinket place. And uh, it had a sign there, out to lunch. Take what you want and leave the money in the box. That is trusting. Wasn't that way at all. People would steal money. People would steal your stuff. Two hours, he wasn't there. He said he always felt guilty about that. In fact, it became sort of symbolic of his failures as a son. And long after his dad died, he carried that guilt with him. And then it became sort of symbolic of all the failures he had had in life. It seems like the older you get, the more times you wish you could go back and change things. And so one day, he went to that little town, in the pouring rain and stood there without a hat on, without a coat on for two hours in the place where that book stall used to be to get redemption for penance, but it didn't work. Because none of us can get through the guilt on our own. But also there's slavery as well. There's bondage to addictions, bondage to other gods, relationships, bondage to a career, that's your boss. And, as I've said before, every boss is going to beat you up except for Jesus himself. Anyone who you have on the throne of your life is going to really beat you up. It's, you're never going to get where you need to be. You're never going to be good enough, rich enough, successful enough, have a good enough relationship, have enough relationships. It's never really enough. It just beats you up. You see, a boss can fire you, but a slave master and beat you to a pulp. And it's slavery. And we know that as we meet together today, you ask the question, yeah, we know the condition of our neighbors, but are they really that? They don't, they don't feel lost. Well, let's just take this as an illustration, see if it works. Suppose there was someone and they were going through a, a dark road at night a few pa- couple of passengers in the car, and they had a car accident. And as they got out, bloody and a little bit broken, they looked back in the car and they saw a sight that they would never, never be able to live with. They were the driver, and the two people in the car didn't make it. They begin to wand- this person begins to wander through the forest, totally putting out of their memory just what had happened. In fact they got so lost in the forest they didn't know where they were who they were or where they were going. They saw a light ahead after maybe a 12, 15, 20 hours they walk into the cabin and there were other people that had also been lost in the forest. They got to know them a little bit but they didn't know who they were. They didn't know where they really belonged. They didn't know have any past, recollection of the past. But they begin to feel at home with these other people who had gotten lost in the forest. They begin to build community. They begin to be together. But let me ask you something. You said, well, they didn't feel lost anymore. But were they any less lost? Were they any less lost? They'll still never find their family. They'll still never go back to life where they were. They'll still never get psychological help going through. They are still lost. Well, we look at this and we say, well, that's bad news, but it's not the worst news. The worst news is we can't do anything about it, but are we really all that helpless? It says in verse 24 that we are justified by his grace. We are justified. And it says in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting, our boasting before the Lord? What becomes of that? Because there is no room to boast at all. There's nothing, as we said before, there's nothing we can do to redeem ourselves. The line of perfection is there, and we've slipped below that line of perfection. And it's like Samuel Johnson. We go and we try to redeem ourselves, but we just, we just sim- simply can't do it. There's no way we can make up for sin that we have committed already. The weight of it is on us. The old illustration about the book and the books in heaven and how Uh, all the sins of being written down in heaven, everything that we ever do, and they're gonna be read off in heaven unless they're forgiven. Here's my life, here's my problem. And there's nothing I can do to get rid of all this that I've offended God with. There's nothing I can do. Jesus had to come along and do it for me. So we see the worst news, but also then we see the good news. Why is Jesus then the answer. In verse 24, it talks about being justified. It says, declared not guilty. Now, this is a legal term. It's like you're in a courtroom and the judge is looking at you and he's saying, you know, I ought to throw the book at you. You've got a whole book of stuff. Well, you know, gee, I I bet you I only sinned three times a day my whole life, Uh, your honor. Well, how old did you live to be? And they, 80? Well, see, that's a 1,000 cents a year. That's 80,000 sins. 80, if I turned in those, those into traffic violations, what do you think I should do with that? You look at the judge, you say, oh, I only had 80,000 cents. And there's nothing you can do to make up for that. But he says, no, based upon the blood of Jesus Christ and how he died on the cross for your sins, I declare you not guilty. And you say, well, I'm not even better than I was before. But I declare you, God says, not guilty. Guilty. It begins then the sanctification process because justification is simply more than forgiveness. Forgiveness says you can go. Go and sin no more, as he said to the adulterous woman. But justification means you can come. You can come now to God. You those sins have been wiped away in your life. And because of that, he says it's it's been done by his blood look with me in verse 25 whom god put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith now this is a a big word and it's also a, one that's an, a kind of an unpopular doctrine it means to turn aside someone's wrath now, we don't like to think about God as being a wrathful God for sure. We like for it to think about him being a loving God and the fact that, you know, that he would be angry with us for whatever. Is, it's just not conducive to our worldview. But actually, this word means that he is upset with your sin, not necessarily you. For example, if you have a friend, and some of you do, you have a friend, relative, and you're angry, you seem angry with them because they're, say, addicted to drugs but really what you're angry about is how they are living their lifestyle, how those drugs have really taken a, a toll on their life and those drugs and that addiction to that, those, that alcohol or, or the drugs, and you're saying, would you quit, would you quit? We've gotta get you help. It's not that you hate your brother, your sister, your friend, but you hate what that sin is doing to them. God hates that sin, and his wrath is poured out on that sin for that reason. But you say, but somebody else says, well, yeah, but it seems like it's a pagan, like a pagan God. You know, you've heard these stories before where, you know, the pagan God and days of old, and maybe even now in certain places in the world, would require a blood sacrifice to appease your sin. I said, you know, is God just like the pagan gods? That he would require his son to die on a cross and spill his blood and do a payment for our sin? Well, think of it this way. Behind the scenes of it all is a doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God, three different persons. It's not that God just sent his son to die on the cross. When he was born into this world, he certainly became that human son. But the Bible says that God himself died on the cross through Jesus Christ for your sins. It's not that God required the blood sacrifice, we'll save a baby, like the pagan gods, or some sacrifice of your son. He died on the cross himself for your sin. He sacrificed on the cross for your sin. And so this propitiation, What happened there? God averted his wrath toward our sin because that wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, remember what he said, Lord, if this cup of wrath could be taken away from me, I pray that you would do that. What was that cup of wrath? It's God pouring out his wrath upon himself on the cross so you and I can be clean of all of our sin and be reconciled to him and redeemed out of that. See, God is not angry so much with you in that sense, but he is angry at the sin and we embody that sin. We won't get rid of that sin. He gives us every opportunity to come to him and be rid of that and be be redeemed out of that and be cleansed from that if we'll only come. And if we come, we'll be cleansed. If we don't come, we embody that sin. And the wrath of God is then poured out on that sin and its container as well. And so the good news is Jesus Christ died on the cross, and why did it have to be Jesus? Because God himself gave that blood sacrifice on the cross for you. And so what is the best news? It's a gift, and it's freely given. But you ask, is it really all that free? And the reason you ask that, you think, okay, once I receive Jesus into my heart, what does that really mean? Look, look with me in verse 27. He says, what about your boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. He's saying you don't get to heaven by the law of your works, but having faith in Christ. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You are saved, justified, declared not guilty. You're the, the penalty of your sin washed away by justification apart from the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? No, he is not the God of Gentiles also. Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that is, the Jewish people by faith, and the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, the non-Jews by faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He says, now wait a minute. Pastor, what you're saying is, is that when we present the gospel and it's all peace and love and joy, and then we kind of throw in that obedience thing, because they need to know what's coming. But really what you're saying is, it's salvation on the installment plan. Is that what you're saying? You know, you get saved, you invite Christ into your life, and then you work for it. No, it's not at all. You see, something happens to us when we fall in love with Jesus and the bible says that when we receive jesus into our heart there's a love relationship that begins we we go from being someone that's afar from christ to someone that's close to christ you see this whole thing in verse 1 verse 21 the righteousness of god yes it's revealed in justification But that's the first step of salvation. That's when you've been saved from the very penalty of all of your sin. Sanctification that he talks about in chapters 6 through 8. Sanctification is being saved from, from uh, from, from the practice of sin in your life. It's the practical part of it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God, Romans 5, 5, comes into your heart and changes your life. Therefore, I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ and because I'm a new creation just like I naturally wanted to sin before and maybe some part of me still does more than that because I'm a believer I want to please God so it's not a matter law 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 in fact Paul would even say you know you need the law as a as a guidance but you don't need it as a taskmaster. It's no longer your master. It's no longer beating you over the head because you don't do things in order to somehow appease the wrath of God. That's already been appeased. You do things to follow Christ because you love him, because your heart has been changed by the very power of God. So you see, it's not on the installment plan at all. And something, you say, you see, this is the essence of salvation, is it not? you humble yourself before God God I can do nothing to save myself but I just simply trust you I put you as my point of trust in my life and you're trusting in something some of you here today are watching you're trusting in the fact that you think you're enough on your own you're trusting in something you have more time Somebody sitting here this morning or or watching, they think, well, you know, I'm going to take this in like I've taken in a lot of other messages over my lifetime. I'm going to think through this and think, you're gambling. You're trusting that you have more time. You're trusting that maybe God is a grandfather. You know what I mean? Instead of a father. Someone that will just bless you and bless you, but will not hold you accountable. That's a gamble. Because the Bible does not present him that way at all. But you think your view of God is right. And so you're you're gambling, you're trusting in that. Or today you may want to start trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you. Did he die for you? Did he die for you? And I'm speaking to those now, particularly that maybe have never received Christ in their heart. Billy Graham, the story is told, I think, in one of his autobiographies. 1955, he was invited to go to Cambridge University. And if you know anything about Cambridge, it's very intellectual, and uh, it's very much known for that. And so when he went there, he he admitted uh, in his book that he was very intimidated. And so the first two or three nights, they, they had people down. I mean, there were people on the floor everywhere in the auditorium. I think they had 8,000 students plus teachers at the time. And um, uh, they were there and they were protesting. They had their arms folded. Many of the people were talking around campus and their protest back then was basically, we don't want this guy here. They would tell the administration, we don't want him here. How, how dare somebody come in like this? So simple minded is this man. And so for the first three nights, he preached on intellectualism. He preached on philosophers and through a lot of intellectual stuff in, trying to get on their level, but it wasn't him. And so the fourth night, knowing that their biggest protest was all about the blood, the blood, man, how paganistic that is. He took the book of Genesis and went through the entire Bible about blood sacrifices until he got to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He preached the gospel. 400 students, much to the surprise of everyone, came forward that night to give their heart and life to Jesus Christ on that last night of the crusade. 400 at Cambridge University. Years later, someone was telling that story as a story they had heard. And around the table, there was a man sitting there 20 years later, and he said, you know, I was one of those students that you're telling, what you're telling is absolutely true. I was one of those students that came forward that night, giving their heart and life to Jesus Christ. And the guy that was leading the discussion said, well, what was, what was going through your mind that night? He says, you know, I don't remember a lot what was going through my mind. All I know is when I left that auditorium that night, All I could think about was Jesus Christ died for me. For me. He had reached the point where it was for me. Did Jesus Christ die for you? Did he? Right now, as we get our hearts quiet before the Lord, let me ask you, did he really die for you? Do you know that? If you know that, the question then is, what are you going to do about that? And so I want to invite you tonight, today, to receive Jesus into your heart by calling on his name. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. How do you call on him? You pray. Would you pray with me? Would you do that? You want to receive Christ. You want to have the but now in your life with heads bowed and eyes closed. This is the prayer I want to pray with you. You can repeat it silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I ask you to come into my life and become the master of my life. On the throne of my life right now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.